HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is David Winston. David is an herbalist and ethnobotanist with over 40 years of training in Cherokee, Chinese, and Western herbal traditions. He's run a clinical practice for over 30 years and is an herbal consultant to physicians throughout North America. He's founded an herbal manufacturing company called Herbalist and Alchemist, as well as David Winston Center for Herbal Studies. David is author of many books, including Adaptogens, Herbs for Strength, Stamina, and Stress Relief. He is also a founding member of the American Herbalist Guild. Speaking of which, you can see David and many other amazing herbalists speak at the 2013 American Herbalist Guild Symposium this coming November. Visit ahgsymposium.com for information. And finally, you can visit David anytime at herbaltherapeutics.net and herbalstudies.net. David Winston, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So, David, is it true that you started teaching about herbs when you were a teenager? Yes, actually it is. Uh, I started studying herbs at a very young age, and um, I think I led my first herb walk when I was 16 years old and uh, did that for several years. And I think I did my first class when I was about probably somewhere between 19 and 20. Uh, is when I first actually started teaching. And I remember the first time I had to get up in front of a room of people, full of people and talk, and I had everything written down and I lost my place and got incredibly nervous. And that was the last time I ever did that in the sense of writing everything down. I like to, to know my material and then sort of talk from what I know rather than trying to have a script. <laughs> so how did it all start for you? So you're, you're, here you are starting to teach at 60, which meant you must have really had an interest early on is this did you have mentors as a child or is this kind of one of those things that you just kind of followed in your own path well initially i had somewhat of an unusual childhood let's just put it that way (laughs) and i spent a lot of my time out in the woods and i learned at a pretty young age that there were plants that were edible and I remember someone showed me this wonderful tasting plant that, and I didn't remember what the name of it was, but mm-hmm. it had this wonderful lemon lime flavor. And I always liked things that were tart. And it turns out that the plant was sheep sorrel. Huh. And I wanted to figure out what it was. And I started looking at plants. And one of my first plant books was Yule Gibbons, um, his uh, Searching for the Wild Asparagus. And I just found it absolutely fascinating that there were edible plants, not things that people were growing, but just you could go out into the woods. And I you know, grew up gathering wild raspberries and blackberries mm. and blueberries and things and strawberries, things like that. That was sort of part of my childhood. But I was fascinated that you could do more. And then it also fascinated me. Um, actually, Yul Gibbon's book was Stalking the, the Wild Asparagus. Mm-hmm. And then he had another book called Stalking the Healthful Herbs. And those two books were absolutely major influences on me. The idea that you could find medicine out in the world and you could find food out in the world. So what I started doing around the age of 13 is I had two things going on. Number one, I was also very much into organic agriculture. And there was a a local man who lived not far from me. And I was friends with his son who was from Germany and he practiced organic gardening. And so he taught me about organic gardening, and I started growing um, 
uh, vegetables and I started growing uh, herbs as well. And by the time I was 13 or 14, I had a roadside stand. I had two acres under cultivation and my only power equipment was a rototiller. Uh-huh. Everything else was done by hand and two acres is a lot to do by hand. Yeah. And I, in the summers, I sold organic uh, vegetables. Oh, wow. uh, I used to go over to the, the local market and I saw what their prices were. And that's what I would price my organic <laughs> vegetables at that, in that day and age. And at the same time, I became increasingly interested in herbal medicine. And so what I would do is at that point, I didn't have a mentor. Uh, so I would buy every book I could find on herbal medicine. And there weren't very many. Um, two of my first, one was uh, Jethro Kloss's Back to Eden, which was uh, an amazing book, although somewhat flawed. But of course, I, I didn't know the difference. And the other book is a book I'd still recommend today, which was Maud Greaves' Modern mm-hmm. Herbal, which, of course, was written in 1931, so it's hardly modern anymore, but it's still an incredible book. And I read these books. I mean, I read them like you would read a novel, and I was fascinated, and, of course, I wanted to find these plants, so I'd go out and try to identify plants, and I taught myself field botany. Now, I have to admit, I made more than a few mistakes. Luckily, none of them were fatal. <laughs> Uh, but some of them were, are make very funny stories today. I managed to make myself fairly violently ill any number of times. Oh, got to tell. Uh, what's one time? You got to tell. <laughs> well, probably the, one of the funniest times is I had read about this herb called senna, mm-hmm. and um, in Jethro Kloss's Back to Eden, and you know he's talking about how it's just a phenomenal laxative and everything. And I didn't need a laxative, but I had this idea, which interestingly enough, I still have the same idea, and that is before I give somebody something. I actually want to know the plant. I want to know what it does, how it feels, what it does. So I tend to try things, even, you know, I don't necessarily need them, but I want to try them. I want to get a sense of the plant. Um, and so I, he doesn't give really clear directions on how much to take or how frequently to take it. So I made up a batch of it. Oh, well, I, I looked around and I couldn't find it. And I read that it, you know, it actually came from, uh, northern Africa, so obviously it wasn't going to find any growing in my uh, neighborhood, although it does turn out that there is an American senna that d- did grow in that area, mm-hmm. but I never found it at the time. And so I went to my local health food store, and in the back of the shop, they had select herb teas and boxes, and these were like, you know, probably been sitting there for years with a layer of dust, uh, an eighth of an inch thick on top of them, and I bought it, and I brought it home, and so I proceeded to brew up a really strong batch of this, and I drank it, and this was in the morning, and um, nothing happened, and by late afternoon, nothing had happened, and so I thought, well, I must not have taken enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't understand that you take a laxative at night, and you have a bowel movement, you know, usually six to eight hours later. <laughs> So I brewed up another batch, but I made it stronger, and I took a whole lot more of it. Well, let's put it this way. I know Senna intimately on a gut level. Uh, I spent, it was one of those nights that you aren't going to die, but you just wish you would. And uh, it, was, it was pretty miserable, but it gave me an incredible respect for this plant and, and what it can do. And so, yeah, that's one of the, the stories. Didn't, didn't manage to kill myself, but managed to make myself pretty violently did, ill. Did you grow, I mean, you practice, you're practicing in West Central Jersey. Now, do you, um, do you, did you grow up around there or? Actually, uh, as a young, as a younger person, I was in Maryland. Mm. Um, but we moved, my family moved to New Jersey when I was about, um, uh, 11 or okay. 12. Okay. And so, yeah, we were in a part of New Jersey that's now extremely, um, built up. 
But at the time, it was right on the edge. Most of it was still farmland and right on the edge of, you know, there was development. So mm. we lived right on the, in between the two. So we still had land and, and things like that. And I spent a tremendous amount of my time out in the woods. Sounds like my hometown in Jersey. Learning about, <laughs> learning about plants and exploring. And that was a wonderful part of my childhood. And everyone, you can tell from our accents that we're from New Jersey, right? I mean, no. <laughs> Actually, I don't have a New Jersey accent. I don't either, I don't think. But I did grow up there. <laughs> I, I grew up about an hour west of where you are. Oh, east of where you are right now. I'm trying to do east, I think, in Monmouth County. Once upon a time, I did have a Maryland accent. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Um, so you, um, you, so you, you teach about or you're inspired or, or I should say, um, you know, influenced um, by different styles of medicine, but also um, Cherokee uh, medicine. Is this, are you have Cherokee roots um, in yes. your heritage? Yes. So can you, t- can you talk about that? Well, I, I'm briefly, I mean, um, when I was a teenager, I started spending time down in North Carolina with an uncle and mm-hmm. an aunt. And I want to say aunt, it's really a more distant relationship than mm-hmm. that. But, um, and um, both of them uh, were familiar with herbal medicine and Cherokee herbal medicine. And I spent many, many, many years um, living at their house, you know, back and forth and and learning from them and learning from other elders. And um, so, yes, uh, in addition to Cherokee medicine, I also studied with a Chinese doctor who I apprenticed with in New York for several years when I lived in New York. Um, This would have been back in the Mm mid-70s. And then I also studied with a brilliant American herbalist named William Lasassier, who was the first person who not only introduced me to Chinese herbs, but the first person who introduced me to the concept of energetics, which is a Hmm. key to, in my mind, good herbal medicine. You know, um, I grew up in a time where herbal medicine was virtually extinct in North America. I mean, there were a few ethnic communities, certainly Asian American communities and Native American communities and some rural African American communities and probably rural Hispanic communities where herbal medicine continued to be practiced. But mainstream America, herbal medicine just ceased to exist. And it's what I call the herbal dark ages. And I feel very fortunate that, you know, I happen to be one, I guess, one of the people that, you know, helped to um, bring about the resurgence of herbal medicine. Uh, and many people, you know, mm-hmm. did that. People like William Lasassier and Michael Moore and Rosemary Gladstar. These are people who, you know, really inspired, uh, you know, an entire generation of yeah. people to to regain and relearn this knowledge. And what has come of this is this remarkable eclectic, and I don't mean eclectic in the sense of the eclectic physicians, but in the definition of the word eclectic, meaning the best of each. We have the American herbal tradition as it exists today. It has to be one of the most vibrant, alive, fascinating traditions that's ever existed because what we have is this amalgamation of TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, Native American traditions, European phytomedicine, folk medicine, Southern folk medicine, um, Yunani Tib, mm. um, on and on and on, Tibetan medicine, and it's science and scientific herbal medicine, and it's all kind of blending together to create this basically new system of medicine that hopefully we'll take the best of each and create something that is unique and and new 
And so that has been my inspiration in my practice of medicine. I think energetics is one of the keys to really good herbal medicine. So instead of treating diseases, we can treat people. And so with this background, along with Western science, um, you're able to kind of, it seems like you kind of make, you know, have a, have a nice way to blend this together. Well, I agree because science is wonderful. You know, science is a tool. Some people think of it kind of as a religion, a truth, but Mm -hmm. science is about finding the truth. Mm -hmm. It's a tool to help us to do that. And so science is wonderful. And so, you know, when I talk about herbal medicine, I believe that there's both the art and the science, and they are equally important. You don't want just intuition, and you don't just want clinical trials because clinical trials are often very limited, and the way they're done does not really often replicate the way really good herbal medicine is practiced. So the idea is to take the best from both. And so we use science, but we use tradition, we use energetics, we use differential diagnostics, and we combine that. So, you know, Hippocrates said more than 2,000 years ago, it's more important to know the person that has the disease than the disease the person has. And he was right. He was absolutely right. And so it's not like I don't care what disease somebody has if I'm working with somebody. I do want to know that information, but I'm more interested in the underlying processes that are driving this condition. How can we help this person to regain homeostasis or the ability to create allostasis in their body? And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to adaptogens. Mm -hmm. How can we help people to regain their health and not just cover up symptoms? Hmm. And good herbal medicine, and remember, with good herbal medicine, we're not just talking about herbs. We're talking about all the foundational things. You know, you can give people herbs until the herbs are coming out of their ears. And if you don't deal with a foundation, good diet, healthy lifestyle, uh, you know, uh, sleep, exercise. Those are the foundational things. So anybody who's a good herbalist is obviously also dealing with those foundational things. You can't avoid doing that. It's essential. And then herbs offer us an incredible way to help alter a person's health in a way that promotes healing and promotes prevention. Um, We can do so much. I also say, David, you're very psychic because you've been able to answer like six questions in a row without me actually that I have written down without you act, me actually a- asking them. It's very, it's very quite t- talent that you have there. <laughs> so we were just talking. You were talking about um, you know adaptogens, and you wrote a book called Adaptogens. Uh, well, it's in the title, which is a very which are very important these days. We were very um, focused in on them. Um, so that's why we. When we spoke earlier, we thought it'd be a great topic for today to kind mm-hmm. of hone in on. Um, so, also some HerbMentor.com members uh, and uh, put in some great questions. We'll get to a little later. But before we get to that, um, what are adaptogenic herbs? Well, you know, it's a, it's an awesome question, and it really is the question that caused me to write this book. Mm. And the term adaptogen was coined in the early '60s. The initial work on adaptogenic substances, although the word adaptogen had not been created yet, was uh, by a Soviet researcher named Lazarov. Um, After he sort of stopped doing this work, another Soviet researcher named Israel Breckman continued his work, and he's considered to be the father of adaptogens, and he created the term adaptogens. 
Now, Breckman basically defined an adaptogen as having three basic qualities. Number one, the substance is relatively non-toxic to the recipient. So in the normal therapeutic dose, it's non-toxic. That doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to sit there and drink five quarts of you know, whatever the tea happens to be a day. But in the normal therapeutic dose, it's basically non-toxic. Number two, an adaptogen has non-specific activity and it acts by increasing resistance of the organism to a broad spectrum of adverse biological, chemical, and physical factors. What does that mean? It means that it overall increases your resistance to stressors, be they physical stress, emotional stress, uh, temperature stress, noise stress. It doesn't matter with the f- where the stress is coming from, but it increases your ability to deal with these things in an effective and appropriate way. And number three, they basically help to regulate or normalize organ and system function within the organism, meaning they work as what we would call amphoterics. Now, mm-hmm. The term amphoteric is a European, well, it's mostly used in the UK, actually, and it means something that normalizes function. So if you give somebody an immune amphoteric, it can be used for somebody with a excessive immune response, somebody with a deficient immune response, or somebody who has both, which would be most autoimmune diseases, where you have both a hypo and hyper immune response all at the same time. So that's an immune amphoteric. Adaptogens tend to be systemic amphoterics, meaning they help normalize function overall, although not specifically for a specific organ. So if we looked at um, amphoterics to the female reproductive system, we have an herb such as shatavari, um, which actually might be an adaptogen, but we're not 100% sure about that at this point. But um, so adaptogens don't tend to necessarily do this to every organ system, but they do it to the organism in general. So the, this was the initial definition of an adaptogen. So based on that, uh, and mostly Soviet research, although there's also some Chinese research and more modern, there's Indian research, mm-hmm. um, based on that, there are a certain number of herbs that we can pretty much say are absolutely adaptogens. What started to happen, though, is people, especially in the herbal community and also in the scientific community, started to say that anything that seemed to help improve stress response was an adaptogen. Now, things can help stress response for various reasons. They can do it through this so-called adaptogenic effect, but they could also do it because they help relieve stress, meaning they're a nervine. And so we started to see articles in the literature claiming things like, um, oh, some of the more outrageous ones. We've seen articles claiming that spirulina is an adaptogen. We've seen articles claiming that cranberries are an adaptogen. Uh, they're not. They're absolutely not. So, so it's become so, like a buzzword, right? As you're, you're, well, it, it, that's the problem. Yeah. It started to become something that people would say, and I, and I all the time I have to tell you how many conferences I go to and somebody's doing a class on adaptogens, and I look at their notes and I see plants in there that are absolutely not adaptogens, like maca, being claim, you know, people claiming that they're adaptogens. And so this, one of the things that drove me to write this book is I became frustrated because I think adaptogens are really important. I think they're an incredibly important class of herbs that we need. I mean, has there ever been a time in the world that people are more stressed out than now? <laughs> so I think that they are absolutely essential and important, but I think we need to be clear about our 
definitions. If we can't even communicate amongst ourselves in the herbal community as to what is and is not an adaptogen, how are we going to share this information with the rest of the world? And if we start making claims that are not true, mm-hmm. eventually that's going to come back and bite us. And, and is, is another area that gets confused as well are like, to, like tonics? Are they the same as tonics? Well, here's the thing. Tonics can mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So in Chinese medicine, you have qi tonics. Many qi tonics are adaptogens, but not all qi tonics are adaptogens. So, so some things are, some things aren't, uh, because the concept of a qi tonic is different than the concept of an adaptogen. In Ayurveda, you have the concept of rasayanas, rejuvenative remedies. Some of the rasayanas, turns out like an ashwagandha, are indeed adaptogens, but you have other uh, rasayanas, such as eclipta, which definitely is not an adaptogen. So other traditional traditional systems in medicine have always had this concept of herbs that were tonifying, but that does not necessarily mean they fit the full definition of an adaptogen because the definition has evolved. So on those initial three points that I made, there are several others. It turns out that adaptogens work through the HPA axis and the SAS. Mm-hmm. All right. The HPA axis is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. This is the master control, endocrine control in the body. And the HPA axis controls all endocrine function, much immune function, although there's much of the immune functions also in the gut, and uh, much of nervous system function. So this is one of the master control systems of the body. And the SAS is the sympathoadrenal system, which is basically your fight or flight syndrome. It's right. the interface between the sympathetic nervous system and the adrenals. So for something to be an adaptogen, its primary mode of activity has to be through the HPA axis and SAS, which means Spirulina cannot be an adaptogen because it doesn't affect those systems. Cranberries can't be an adaptogen because they don't affect that system. Eclipta is not an adaptogen. It does not affect those systems. So now we have a scientific basis for what's happening. Even more recent research by a researcher named Panosian, who is the number one researcher on adaptogens now in the world, unfortunately, he only researches three plants. And so all of his research is on rhodiola, schizandra, uh, I think, and eleuthero. I think those are the only three he focuses in on. Mm-hmm. So it, it definitely has increased the research on those three plants, but it, it doesn't really broaden it out. But he, he is the number one researcher on this topic. And he has discovered that not only do adaptogens work through the HPA axis and SAS, and by the way, he's the one who discovered that, He's also discovered now that adaptogens even work on a cellular level, and they affect three different types of um, cell signaling compounds. The first are basically what are called heat shock proteins, and these are basically released when there is tremendous stress, including elevation of body temperature, say a fever. Hmm. And the heat shock proteins basically prevent the um, when we're chronically stressed out, we'll develop elevated cortisol levels. And what that does is downregulate mitochondrial function in the cell. And the mitochondria are the engines of your cell. So your mitochondria aren't working, you have no energy. So basically, these two heat shock proteins plus something called a forkhead protein and something called neuropeptide Y, adaptogens upregulate all of these. And so what they do is they prevent 
basically cortisol or stress-induced mitochondrial dysfunction and think about conditions such as fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. and chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome. What's going on? Stress-induced mitochondrial dysfunction is sort of at the root of these conditions. So, of course, that means adaptogens are absolutely indicated as part of a protocol for either one of those diseases, those conditions. And neuropeptide Y is even more interesting because it has been shown that neuropeptide Y increases um, neuronal plasticity and it allows our not only our brain but our nervous system to have a more appropriate response to stress and it be more flexible in its response to stress. Hmm. So what we now know is adaptogens work through these two control systems, through you know the control endocrine nervous system and immune function, as well as a whole other, a lot of other things, they also regulate a whole range of metabolic regulators. Adaptogens affect cytokines, catecholamines, cortisol, serotonin, nitrous oxide, corticotrophin, uh, cortico, uh, corticotrophin releasing factor, sex hormones. I mean. It is wow. the effect is systemic because remember, the HPA axis is affecting endocrine function. That means all of your hormones. It's affecting cellular mechanisms, so all these uh, cell regulating compounds. So the effect is systemic. It is a broad-reaching effect, and many many herbs have significant effects on the body, beneficial effects on the body, but they certainly don't fit this definition. You know, you know. Just a question that popped in my head having studied acupuncture was that I always wondered when I'm in, you know, sitting in acupuncture school and, 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 and they, you know, of course we're talking about chi, right? In acupuncture mm-hmm. school. And then I'm in my classes and in, in uh, the Western medicine classes and they're talking about like you were just talking about mitochondria and mm-hmm. about like, you know, energy for in, in that cellular level. Um, where's the connection you know, like between like, so we can say that it's all, you know, ATP energy or it's, uh, you know, and all in that cellular level, but there's also the chi thing going on. Cause I know that if I do certain points, it seems to increase in energy. So what about, you know, that connection along with these adaptogens, because it sounds like that, like they're really addressing at that systemic level. Is that also helping with the chi? Absolutely. And I would even go as far to say as certain adaptogens may even enhance jing. Um, which is in TCM, the life force. Um, so they help, they, in, they increase qi. Um, and as I said, many of your Chinese qi tonics oh, turn out to be adaptogens. Uh, Asian ginseng, mm, American ginseng, which of course is used in Chinese medicine, uh, shizandra, um, you have things like uh, codenopsis, dongshen. Um, these are all uh, adaptogens. And so, and I think, I think really what you have is there's not a perfect overlap as to, you know, what is qi? Whenever you try to take Chinese concept, as I always find it funny when I'm teaching my students about the Chinese organs, and they're like, you know, and they're assuming when you, you know, oh, it affects the liver. Well, the Chinese liver is not the Western liver. Right. Uh, they're really different. Some of the organs have significant overlap, but some have significant differences. I think the, the beauty of the Chinese system is that they're not looking at isolated organs. And the more Western science has studied the human organism, the more we find that these Chinese concepts are valid in that 
for instance, Chinese medicine says the heart stores shen, which is um, people translate as spirit, but I would say a better translation would be consciousness and emotion. So we now know that the heart is an endocrine organ and it is deeply affected by stress. And we know that basically the heart has receptors for all sorts of neurochemicals and hormones. And so this idea that, you know, each organ is separate, the way I learned anatomy and physiology when I went to college was, you know, the heart's the heart and the lungs are the lungs. And yeah, they interact, but, you know, you learn each thing separate. And of course, the understanding is when you learn physiology, they're not exact, they're not separate. But the Chinese concept is, is nothing's really separate. Everything interacts with everything. And that is the reality when you start looking at like the immune system. Mm-hmm. But where does the immune system live? Right. Everywhere. It's the, it's the lymphatics all the way to the, uh, to the gut, gut to, the, to, everything. to the intestinal microbiome, which isn't even you. The, the integumentary <laughs> system. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's everything. So, I mean, it, to me, it, to me it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But you know, I think to answer the question, you know, I think we can't get an exact overlap. Just like when you look at tonics, they don't exactly overlap with the concept of an adaptogen, which is a Western scientific concept, mm-hmm. but, and it doesn't totally overlap with the idea of a Rasayana, which is a Ayurvedic concept, mm-hmm. but they do overlap. You know, they're not identical, but they do overlap to some degree. And so when we talk about chi, are we talking about cellular messenger, you know, regulatory uh, uh, compounds? Probably. But I don't think you're ever going to say this equals this. I think this relates to, you know, these processes perhaps is about as close as we're going to get. And, um, but, you know, it's fascinating because in Chinese medicine, not to go on too far into that, they've always had this idea of systemic function. So you have an organ like the triple burner, heater, warmer, whichever mm-hmm. translation you want. And, you know, in the West, they say, well, such a thing doesn't exist. Well, what they're talking about is the physiology of fluid metabolism. Okay. Right. Exactly. It's, it's a, it, you know, it's remarkable. And of course, in the West, we didn't understand that for a much, much longer. Well, you say in your book, you say Western medicine aims to destroy external disease causing pathogens and Ayurveda and Chinese medicine aimed at strengthening the vitality and innate bodily intelligence within a person by promoting internal balance. Correct. Yeah. So you open your book with a quote from, from James Duke that all plants contain adaptogenic tonic compounds because plants have to contend with a good deal of stress themselves is can you explain this is this kind of you know kind of give a good metaphor to what we're talking well yes and no um in in that sense i mean all plants do um have the ability to adapt to stress they have to that's how they survive but that doesn't make all plants adaptogens all right, so we want to make a, a clear definition that mm-hmm. all plants have beneficial, uh, well, not all plants, there are plants that are quite toxic, um, but all of the medicinal herbs that we are working with in general have beneficial effects. And so some of them uh, you know, may increase diuresis, some of them may stimulate digestion, some of them may enhance uh, a phase one or phase two liver detoxification, other things may downregulate an ex- excessive immune response or promote immune competence. Um, other things may be adaptogenic, which means they have this overall uh, restorative effect literally on the entire organism. 
But the, the fascinating thing is, is, and I was mentioning before, is like a Pinosian who's doing wonderful research, he really is focusing in on three plants. And to a great degree, that's because I believe, and I may be mis, this may not be true, but I think a lot of his research is sponsored by a company that manufactures a product that contains those three plants, mm. um, which doesn't make the research any less valid. But I think I think the the issue is one of the issues is is that there's probably only about a dozen plants that we actually know are adaptogens, and then there's probably about another ten or twelve that I believe probably are adaptogens. Then there's probably a list of thirty or forty that various people have claimed to be adaptogens, but there's little to no science behind it. Um, and I suspect that if there was more active research, we would find out that there are probably I don't think adaptogens are going to be like the, you know, something where, you know, there'll be thousands of them, but I suspect that there's way more than we know. Um, but I also find it interesting how often people are making claims like nettle seed is an adaptogen. Nettle seed is the greatest kidney trophy restorative we have. I cannot say it's not an adaptogen. I can say I've given it to a lot of people and I've never noticed anything that I would consider an adaptogenic effect. Nutritive? Yes. Nutritive is not an adaptogen. So maca is nutritive and maca in high doses seems to enhance reproductive function, but is it an adaptogen? I can't say that it's not, but I at this point would say I don't really think that it is. It's more of a nutritive food. Um, so there are many things that people are claiming are adaptogens that aren't, but we, we have a you know fairly small list but, you know, we do have plants that there is, you know, really a good deal of evidence showing that whether it be American ginseng, ashwagandha, Asian ginseng, and by the way, it doesn't matter whether it's Korean or or Chinese, same plant, cordyceps fungus, donshen, codenopsis, eleuthero, um, uh, licorice, reishi, rhodiola, and schizandra, these are definitely adaptogens in my mind. And then we have a bunch of plants that are probably adaptogens. That includes things like holy basil and jiao gulan, uh, which is a Chinese herb. And then we have things like uh, some of the Aurelia manchurica from, uh, from Russia and the Ayurvedic herb guduchi. And um, perhaps uh, there's some Chinese herbs like marinda, uh, the Ayurvedic herb shatavari they may be adaptogens, but they're simply just not the level of evidence that we can sit there and say, absolutely it is. Mm. And so one of the things I think is really important, if we want to continue, you know, one of the things that's happened in the United States, you know, as one of the people who was sort of there in the beginning of this herbal renaissance, in some ways I can say we've been more successful than we ever thought. Um, hmm. I know I don't get those phone calls anymore. What's this plant? Echinacea. You know, I don't get those calls. Everybody in the United States has heard of echinacea. Everybody's heard of St. John's wort. Everybody's heard of turmeric and milk thistle. So what's happened is certain herbs have become popular, but herbal medicine has not. Most Americans think herbal medicine is taking St. John's wort instead of Prozac. Mm -hmm. That's not herbal medicine. That's the allopathic use of herbs. And as I said earlier, good herbal medicine, we treat people, not diseases. So ultimately, while in some ways we've been successful, in other ways, we still have so much work to do. You know, herbs, mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, I am a passionate advocate for herbs. Why? Because I have seen what they can do in 37 years of clinical practice. I have seen, and you know, 
many of the people that I work with, they've been to everybody. They've been to every doctor in the world. They've been to all sorts of other specialists and other traditional, you know, other you know types of complementary alternative medicine. And so when the herbs work where nothing else has, don't tell me it's placebo. Because if it was placebo, placebo would have kicked in when that person, you know, was going to a practitioner they actually believed in, you know. Right. So the reality is, is that herbal medicine is, doesn't have all the answers. No one has all the answers. And personally, I've always felt the combination of orthodox medicine and traditional medicine and herbal medicine is traditional and what the allopathic system is orthodox medicine. Um, that combination is really the true win-win for the patient. When you have a good physician who is open to somebody who you know understands good herbal medicine and they can work together for the patient, I always thought to think that that is really the best uh, option that you can find. But having said that, we have a lot of work to do. The vast majority of Americans still don't understand what the benefits of herbal medicine are. They don't understand how to appropriately use herbs. You know, they often go to a, you know, read something online, they read an article, they go to a health food store where they may be talking to someone who knows a lot or they may be talking to someone who knows absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of work to do. And so if we're going to do that, we as a community, the herbal community, needs to, number one, I think, get our act together in the sense of having some consensus about what do these things mean. And the reality is, is the term adaptogen is well-defined. So let's understand what it means. Let's use it appropriately. Let's learn to use the adaptogens appropriately. And so what another thing that happens is people think, oh, they should have an adaptogen. So we'll just pick one. Mm -hmm. That's Doesn't exactly what I was going to ask about because, you know, yeah. what you're just saying here, matching medicine to, you know, the, the, the good herbal medicine treats the people, not the diseases. I was just thinking, you know, everyone would just like us to go, David, tell me the top three adaptogens and exactly how people should use them so they can, you know, help their stress. And so this is where I, I think we're going that, here is that I'd love yeah. you to get into like, how do you do people approach these approach yeah. adaptogens? Yeah. Well, I could tell you probably the best three adaptogens for you if I knew you. Right. But I can't say the best three adaptogens for everybody because we have adaptogens that are calming. We have adaptogens that are stimulating. Mm -hmm. We have adaptogens that are heating. We have adaptogens that are cooling. We have adaptogens that are drying. We have adaptogens that are moistening. This is the energetics. These are the, the qualities of the herbs plus the energetics of the person you're giving it to. So what you really want to do is, and I'm not saying everybody needs to take an adaptogen, but when you want to give an adaptogen to somebody, it's not just take any adaptogen. It's taking which adaptogen best fits the person and their symptom picture that you are actually working with. And one of the other things that I, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was not only to really define what adaptogens are, but was to create a sort of materia medica of adaptogens that helps people to understand the difference between them. Which one is better for me? Why would I use this one over that one? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I break it down to the point of, you know, I, certain, I think certain adaptogens are better for people of certain ages. Um, I don't think it's so much male or female, but I think it has a lot to do with age. And again, whether somebody is really tired, depleted, deficient, or somebody has an excess personality and they're really hyper and, you know, uh, anxious and irritable, you're going to get a different adaptogen. If somebody has a dry cough, dry mouth, dry skin, vaginal dryness, you're going to get a different adaptogen than somebody who has excessive mucus and post-nasal drip and, uh, you know, where you have too much moisture, too much 
much dampness. And so you're, you're really going to look at the adaptogen to fit the person you're treating. Do you find that when folks come to your clinic, there come many of them probably coming with an acute situation well, that that's chronic, but maybe, you know, showing some symptoms that, um, is it usually a combination of treating an acute situation along with then, um, you know, giving, having them take an adaptogen for the long term? Well, first of all, I should say, just so I don't get inundated, uh, I'm not taking new patients no. at this point. Well, when you, with um, your clinic, when you... But, you but when I, the people I see, who many, most cases I've been seeing for, you know, I have, I have patients that I've been seeing for 25 years. Mm. Um, but when I see somebody, most of the time these days, what I'm seeing are people who have chronic disease. And so, you know, if somebody, most of the people aren't coming because they have a cold, then they'll call me up and they'll say, should I do what I did last time? And I go, yeah, do what you did last time. Rest. Because um, <laughs> it worked last time, it'll probably work this time, unless the presentation is remarkably different. Right. But, um, but generally speaking, there are people who are coming in with, again, chronic degenerative diseases. These are people with autoimmune diseases. These are people with arthritis. These are people with, you know, it might be, uh, things like benign prosthetic hyperplasia. It may be things like migraines. It, uh, you know, there there are things of that nature. Um, you know, but the other side of it is you get people who are basically healthy who want to keep stay healthy. So you have somebody who has this really bad family history of heart disease and they want to be healthy and not develop heart disease, or you have somebody who. Um, you know, has really severe seasonal allergies and you put them on protocols and get them to the point where they don't have allergies anymore. Wow. Wow. And so whether adaptogens are appropriate depends on the specificity of the case. And so you might, you might give somebody an adaptogen because, as I said, some before with chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome or fibromyalgia, I would always be using an adaptogen. Somebody who is being treated for cancer, I would give them adaptogens. Um, but somebody with arthritis, maybe yes, maybe no. And then there are some adaptogenic herbs that also have benefit for arthritis that have nothing to, to do with them being an adaptogen. Say something like ashwagandha, which is anti also anti-inflammatory and also relieves musculoskeletal pain. Okay. So I might use it not because it's an adaptogen, I might use it more for its other uses. On the other hand, the fact that it's an adaptation probably wouldn't hurt. Okay. Okay. So, you know, be, it's like, you know, we could go on and on forever, but before, I mean, I have tons of questions, but I wanted to get some questions that, that folks um, emailed in. Um, Certainly. <clears throat> and so speaking of ashwagandha, one of the questions just happened to be, does ashwagandha have androgen effects and would it be contraindicated in women who have high testosterone levels? I know it's a little different topic, but we're getting to questions here. Well, does it have overt androgenic effects? There are studies showing that ashwagandha enhances uh, testosterone production in men and enhances sperm count and sperm motility. So in men, it indeed does that. Yet, at the same time, uh, ashwagandha is widely used in Ayurvedic tradition. Um, it's used in women who are pregnant. So... It, I would not say it has overtly androgenic effects. Now, would I use it in a woman who has high levels of androgen? So let's say you have a woman with PCOS, uh, which usually has high levels of androgen. Um, I would probably uh, would not necessarily choose to use ashwagandha unless it was really indicated. And the other key to using herbs is 
is in every tradition that I'm aware of, um, every traditional medicine, they use combinations. Formulas are normal. Using herbs as simples is really unusual and rare in traditional medicine. So the reality is, is if you're just giving somebody ashwagandha as a simple or in a capsule, whatever, that is an, a very non-traditional use. Normally, uh, it would be part a small part of a larger formula. And if you understand how to use herbs well, you get a synergistic effect. And by the way, there is tons of research over the last 10 years showing this idea of synergy. The idea that skillfully combining herb A, B, and C together is not just one plus one plus one. So, you know, if you, let's say there's Chinese herb Angelica decurica, and it is often given with another herb called Corydalis. And it turns out that adding the Angelica decurica to the Corydalis increases the pain-relieving effects of the second herb dramatically. And so this was always a traditional combination. So when synergy, one plus one doesn't equal two, one plus one equals three. So you get this synergistic effect. And this has always been the belief in herbal medicine, but up until about 10 years ago, there was no proof. Uh And in the last 10 years, there is tons of proof showing that this idea of synergy really exists. And so you basically, if you understand the plants you're using by combining the appropriate plants together, and there's things actually that create almost an anti-synergy. There's things that actually inhibit things. So one plus one equals one. So you don't want to do that. <laughs> and, you know, I see so many of the products in the health food stores. I know what they did. They got somebody who's a, who put the formula together. All they did is look at research studies and said, this herb worked, this herb worked, this herb worked, this herb worked, this individual herbs and threw them together in a formula. And I'm looking at the formula going, oh, this is bad. You know, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever because they don't understand. They're assuming that there's an innate synergy with everything. And there isn't. Which, which is interesting, like, because Linda and her, and this question here, um, she's interested in keeping herself strong and healthy. She's 55, and she, and she wants to know any specific adaptogens for that. And also about, is it a bad idea to take more than one at a time, or is it better to do them in rotation? So I can see what you're saying here is that, gosh, how, so how could someone like Linda find a way to find an answer f- to find the, the herbs that the adaptogens would match best for her and then knowing which ones might work together when when someone's out there and they're just wondering you know without is there people they need you know or, i mean it, it would, would your book help folks kind of hone <laughs> in on that better or you know what i mean like to get help yeah, well, I mean, as I said before, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book yeah. is that I give people, I, I explain sort of where I use each one and why it's used that way. So that would be one way of doing it, certainly, to get a better sense of, think of it as learning the personality of the herb. Mm-hmm. You have a personality, and each herb has a personality. Absolutely. And so you learn the personality of the plant and say, does this match me? Mm-hmm. Does this match up with me? And so if you see that a plant is a calming adaptogen and you are already pretty laid back and, you know, you're not the kind of person that needs to be more calm, then you say, no, that's not the one for me. Now, in Linda's case, she's 55. That gives me some information, but 55, I know people who are 55 and absolutely vital and energetic, and I know people who are 55 and depleted. Um, I don't know whether she is, you know, uh, sort of a, a person that is more on the hyper side or or hypo in the sense of uh, uh, the nervous system and stress. I don't know those factors, so it would be well, hard. I for know, me to say Linda. This. I'd say more hypo. 
So if she was more hypo and she's, say, 55, uh, let's say maybe she has some dryness, maybe a little bit of, you know, dry mouth, uh, maybe... I could see know, that. 50, 55, you know, maybe perimenopausal or maybe mm-hmm. she's already gone through menopause. Maybe either, you know, could be a little bit of like vaginal dryness or something like that. So then now we're starting to, and this is all hypothetical. Yeah. I know nothing about her. <laughs> But, but, you know, now we're starting to say, okay, so maybe something like American ginseng, which is mildly stimulating, um, it's moistening, it's nourishing and tonifying, and I generally don't use American ginseng for people who are really young. For somebody who's healthy in their teens and 20s, they don't need American ginseng. They still have that vital energy. They have their chi and jing pretty much intact. And so, like, for instance, with the red ginseng, I tend to use that for people who are, you know, 65 and older, unless it's somebody with like chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome where they're literally in bed all day and the big event of the day is getting up, going to the bathroom and getting back in bed. Um, you know, so somebody who is totally depleted energy, I might use um, Asian ginseng, but generally that's for older people. And the American ginseng I use for people in like, you know, late 40s through early 60s who still have a lot of their vitality but are starting to, you know, that's starting to fade a little bit. They're noticing that they get, you know, cold more easily, you know, they get chilled more easily. Um, they've got some dryness issues. They, they need something to nourish them and, and still, you know, help them to, uh, to function, but they don't really need the intense heat that comes with something like uh, red China, uh, Chinese ginseng. Okay. Um, you know, there, I just say that um, folks, when you answer, ask your questions, a lot of, a lot, if I'm not addressing your question it's probably because we've answered it already um at some point and some a lot of these we have but there are parts here uh, someone asked have people have you have you found that people have an allergy sensitivity to ashwagandha as it's in the nightshade family well that's an interesting question and actually there was one question you asked me before that i didn't get to oh, answer um, i forgot so i want to go back for just a minute and that was Linda also asked is it better to you know like rotate them and the answer to that is no Um, not at least in the short term. I don't believe in that. What I do believe in is if you have somebody with chronic disease like cancer or uh, chronic viral disease like hepatitis C, I do rotate formulas because I believe that the virus or the cancer cell can become sort of um, resistant to what you're doing. So I do rotate things on a monthly or six-week basis. But if if you're, she's trying to stay healthy, she doesn't need to rotate it unless things change. So if all of a sudden she realizes, you know, she's taking American ginseng for a while. Now, again, I'm not recommending she just take American ginseng. The best thing would be to go to a clinical herbalist and do a whole protocol that doesn't just address one thing. It addresses all your issues. By the time you're 55, your digestive fire is, is, is starting to, to get lower and your circulation may not be as good. You want to you know, keep an eye on the person's blood sugars and, and blood pressure. So you'd be better off getting a nice formula and American ginseng would probably be part of it. And generally speaking, when I put people on long-term formulas, these are sort of you know, constitutional formulas, I usually change them every four to six months because that's how long it takes for significant change to occur. Wow. So I would readdress a formula after four to six months. And I mean, if somebody has a problem, you would readdress it right away. But if everything's going well, you give it time to, to work, and then you reevaluate and see what's changed and what's new and how you want to re- reevaluate it. So hopefully that answered her question. And the question with ashwagandha is, 
interesting. First off, it brings up the whole idea of nightshade sensitivity. And it so, so happens that um, I actually worked with the guy at Rutgers, Gene Childers, who came up with all this stuff about nightshade sensitivity. And he wrote a book on it back in the early 70s. Um, and initially he thought it was about 3% of the population that nightshade sensitivity. And then eventually he got to the point where he thought it was 10% of the population. And then by the end, he kind of came back down said that the number of people with nightshade sensitivity is probably significantly less than 1%. So all I'm going to say is nightshade sensitivities are real, but they are also not common. So there's a lot of people who think nightshade sensitivities are more common than they are. Now, if you are sensitive to nightshades, if you truly are, then you absolutely should avoid them. The chemical, uh, solacidine, I believe it's called, um, that supposedly causes sensitivity does not is not in ashwagandha. So theoretically speaking, that would mean somebody with a nightshade sensitivity should not react to ashwagandha. But if you have somebody with a true nightshade sensitivity, I would be cautious. You know, so if you have somebody who really indeed has a nightshade sensitivity, mm. I would you know if you're going to give them ashwagandha, I'd give them a small dose and keep an eye on it. And if they react, take them off of it. Okay. But theoretically speaking, people shouldn't react. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who think they have nightshade sensitivities. And then I ask them about it and they find out that they're reading all sorts of things that are nightshades that they didn't know were nightshades. And, you know, and it actually had very little to do with that at all. But French fries are okay. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> they're not, no, they're not a nightshade. Oh, they're okay. <laughs> They are, of course. <laughs> um, she also asked about um, Luthro, and uh, can you take that for a good period of time, or can, well, you need you to rest every most, once in a while? You can take most adaptogens for good periods of time, and I don't really believe this idea that you have to take a vacation from things. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> except your stress. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it would be nice, but I don't really think that that's in most cases necessary. Although, you know, would I have somebody take a Luthero for 10 years in a row? No, I probably wouldn't because I don't think they necessarily need it. A Luthero is one of your least tonifying adaptogens. It is most appropriate for people who are relatively young or very healthy and just, I, I you know, where do I use this? You have somebody who basically is healthy who's got a project at work there where they're basically working crazy hours for a period of, you know, a couple of weeks or a month or two, it could be really useful there. You have somebody who basically takes care of themselves, but it's finals time in college and they're pulling all nighters there. It's useful. The thing that people need to understand is adaptogens do not replace adequate sleep. You can take all the adaptogens in the world. And if you're only getting five hours sleep a night, they're not going to help you. And in fact, under those circumstances, adaptogens can actually be problematic because they'll help you to go longer before you crash. Hmm. But when you crash, it's going to be bad. So don't use adaptogens in, you know, think I'm eating a really bad diet. It's all fast food. I don't get enough sleep. I don't exercise. I smoke. I do all this stuff, all these bad things and think that taking adaptogen is going to, you know, make up for those things. It will not. All right, it just may help cover them up so you can keep doing what's bad for a longer period of time and actually the end result is actually worse. So adaptogens are phenomenally useful. I think they are appropriate for many people, not all, um, but do not think that they can be used instead of living a healthy life. 
Can they help with, uh, Fran, want to know about thinning bone density? Adaptogens per se do not have any effect on reduced bone density, but there are wonderful things that do. I use a, a formula that combines uh, nettle leaf, horsetail, oat straw, black pepper, alfalfa, um, and this profoundly enhances bone density. Hmm. It can prevent osteoporosis. It helps fractures to heal. Oh, and dandelion leaf. It helps fractures to heal in half the time they, they usually take. Um, it's remarkable. Can, can, can people find formulas like that that you do on the herbaltherapeutics.net site? Or? No, they would. that formula is one made by my company, Herbalist and Alchemist, okay. and, uh, which if you hadn't asked me that, I wouldn't have said, you know, because people could make it themselves, obviously. Sure, but, sure. sure. Um, but yeah, I'd, uh, on Herbal Therapeutics, uh, which there is a site, but then we're going to have a new site very soon, okay. the same, same address, but better site. Um, that's basically where you can get, uh, there's uh, articles written by me that you can download. There's articles from my library, which I have uh, one of the largest private herbal research libraries in North America, I'm a bit of a bibliophile. So we have about 9,000 books and from 1550 to current and somewhere around 15 to 20,000 articles on file. And so, you know, some of the cream of the crop we have on the website, people can download those for free and it lists information about my classes and, and all sorts of things like that. And then in addition, there's the um, herbstudies.net site, which is uh, for my school, which is also a, a site with lots of information. And, um, I should let people know that I even have a blog on Facebook. I personally don't have anything on Facebook, but I have a Mm -hmm. blog where I do uh, um, uh, information about herbs and pictures of herbs and things like that every week. And, and, and they can link to that from herbaltherapeutics.net. Yeah, I think, uh, I think they can link to that. Yeah. (laughs) So before I want to ask a few more questions about this, about your school and stuff, but, um, but first, if you were to kind of, you know, wrap up your thoughts about or like if you're doing a talk on adaptogens and all um how would you usually do that how would you you know kind of tie it together well i think the important thing actually i think most of the important things i've actually said i, I think the mm-hmm. thing that people i want people to understand is that adaptogens are i believe a remarkably useful category of herbs i think they can be used in many different ways uh, I think many people, not all, but many people could uh, benefit significantly from having adaptogens in their life, but I want people to understand it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. The dose, the which adaptogen, which other herbs, and in my book, I talk about companion plants. So we have things like nervines, uh, which I think are really good companion plants to adaptogens, and nervines are herbs like chamomile and linden flower and skullcap and fresh oat. Uh, and these are the herbs. Nervines, um, a lot of people, sometimes in the herbal community, they're not people aren't real precise with language, but a lot of people think nervines and sedatives are kind of the same thing. Sedatives sedate. Nervines are the calming herbs that nourish and strengthen the nervous system. So people are under stress. So you have the adaptogen, but combining them with nervines makes a wonderful combination. And so to understand that these things are often used, literally think of them being used in concert with other herbs that would be appropriate to the person. And the more that your listeners learn about herbal medicine, 
um, they don't have to become herbalists, but the more that they learn and the more that they educate themselves, mm. they can then start to make really great choices as to what they're going to use in their life. And if they need professional help, you know, I'd recommend somebody go to the American Herbalist Guild website and see if there's a clinical herbalist near you, you know, in your neighborhood uh, that you could then consult with, especially if you have something that's, you know, more significant. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, m- matching herbs to people. It's something I like to do on this this podcast, one of its purposes is to match uh, listeners to their mentors <laughs> and mm-hmm. to the people that teach. And you do have um, that of the site on herbalstudies.net. Can you tell us about the uh, training program you do? I mean, it's the, the, the two, yeah. it's like a two year course, right? And it's a two year program. And as of about seven years ago, um, it became not only a live class, and so the class is in northwestern New Jersey, and we've literally, we had people driving once a week, and the class is on Tuesdays from 5 to 10. We had people driving from uh, West Virginia, mm-hmm. Virginia. I mean, we had people driving five hours to come to a five-hour class. I thought they were out of their minds, <laughs> but they were doing it. And we had people relocate to the area so they could do the program. Well, the beauty of it is, is that we now the class is both live, so people who are within commuting distance, and I would say that would be up to, you know, maximum two hours. I mean, if somebody's really, you know, wants to go further, they could, but, um, and then the class is also live online. Nice. So we have people now, we have students who are all over, not only all over the entire United States, but Canada, England, Ireland, Iceland, uh, Liechtenstein, mm. Australia. And, of course, the program goes on there. It's live. So, you know, the people in England, their program, instead of 5 to 10 at night, it's 10 to 3 in the morning. And uh, what most of those people do, we, get, we make special arrangements. They log on at 10, and a lot of them log off around midnight or 11, and then they watch the rest of the class in the archive mm-hmm. because the beauty of the class is it's all filmed. Nice. So, and this is, this is much, much higher level than you get with Skype or something. This is real. This is real. The real deal real stuff. And so... <laughs> real video so the beauty is the entire class gets archived so somebody misses a class a couple two days later it's up in the archive they can watch the entire class so you don't have to miss a class even if you're in class and you happen to be ill one day or you're you go on vacation that week or something like that the class is a two-year program it is an intense program where we teach people both what i would call the art and the science of verbal medicine um, we focus in on materia medica, that's the materials of herbs, uh, the, the materials of medicine, the plants. Um, you know, I teach many years in, in the UK, and I, I'm always amazed at how much they spend a lot of time on Western biological sciences, which is good. My students, I have a prerequisite of college-level anatomy and physiology, so you need to come with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, um, our focus is the plants is knowing the plants and knowing them in incredible detail. And uh, so it's a two-year program, as I said. The next program, which starts September 2014, and we're already taking applications now, the next program will be the last program where I'm the primary teacher. And when that program is done, I'll have been teaching this class for 36 years. Wow. Wow. And so um, I'm looking to have some of my other, the other teachers that teach little parts of the program take on a larger role. Um, but uh, this next program, I'm sure, will be very full. <laughs> but uh, it's a great class. And, and then we also offer two one-year additional programs. One's called the therapeutics program and one's called the graduate program. They meet monthly. 
And basically, the idea is to give people the training so that they can become a clinical herbalist. Right. You know, we're, we we give people a taste of herbal pharmacy and field botany and 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 things like that because we want them to be well-rounded. But the idea here is to train people to be clinical herbalists. I should think I didn't even have to leave New Jersey, and I did. <sighs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, and so this could lead people towards AHG uh, professional membership. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And I'm just looking here on the site at herbalstudies.net, and it's just the curriculum and the, everything. It's just well presented here, and it's just very thorough and uh, very exciting. So I, I highly recommend this to folks. This sounds great. Um, and so let's see here. Um the AHG Symposium is coming up, the American Herbalist Guild. Um, what are you teaching there? What's, what's that like at that? Well, it's a great conference. It's, it's, um, you know, there are many different conferences, and they're all really – there's the International Herb Symposium mm-hmm. that Rosemary Glassar puts on. and Actually, Rosemary and my wife, Donna Bryant-Winston, put on that conference, and, and uh, Jeff Carpenter, the, mm-hmm. they, they put that co- conference on. That's right, that, <laughs> that, that is the That conference is probably the biggest party of, of all the conferences. It sure it's was. Just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's an extravaganza conference. It's, it's amazing and, and very worth going to. And then you have other conferences like the Medicines from the Earth Conference in uh, North Carolina mm-hmm. and the American Herbalist Guild Conference, which tend to be more clinically oriented. Not that you can't get that at the international, but, but there it's, it's a broader range of things. And these tend to be more clinical conferences for people who I would say, you know, are either student herbalists or clinical herbalists, and they're, they're wonderful. Um, and so as to what I'm teaching there, good question. I, <laughs> something I really no great. <laughs> something, uh, something hopefully really good, but uh, I actually don't recall what I am teaching uh, at that conference. Um, well, yes, I can see that you'll be, be teaching autism spectrum disorders and the search oh, for answers yes. and botanical nutritional protocols for insomnia and other sleep disorders. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And you know what? That autism class is a new class that I, I try to do at least one or two new classes every year. And um, the autism class, that took me a long time to get together. And I'm really excited about it. I've only taught it twice at this point. So the HG would be the third time. And I introduced that class this year. So it'd be the third time I've taught it this year. And, you know, autism, of course, is a huge, huge issue. You know, when autism was first recognized, it was estimated that basically one out of every uh, something like uh, 10,000 kids was autistic. And now the number in the United States is one out of 88. Hmm. And you, you, people would say, well, you know, better diagnosis, but that's not the case because if it was, we'd have all these autistic adults that don't exist. The, in, the rate of autism has increased dramatically. And so the idea of this class was to come to look at all the potential causes, um, what's out there, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and to present it in a really concise way and, and hope give people who are either dealing with autistic, you know, family members, children, whatever, or want to understand how to work with it, some of those tools, because the information, there's a lot of information out there. And literally, it took me months and months and months just to sift through everything and, and really uh, try to figure it out and understand it and come to conclusions and look at the research, because there's a lot out there that people are doing that there's good studies showing they don't work. Hmm. And then there's things that people aren't doing where the, you know, the, the evidence suggests much greater level of success. So, 
to me, you know, it's important that we continually push the envelope of what we can do and what we can share with people. I'll, I'll tell you just a couple, you know, I'm a little bit of a science geek and I get excited about these things. Do you know that there are herbs that you can give with antibiotics that basically disable the multiple drug-resistant pumps in the bacteria that they're resistant to? Wow. Do you know wow. that there are... There are, so, and this is true with cancer as well, um, there are so many areas, there are things that we can give um, potentially would make an antibiotic work again for something like MRSA. Hmm. And nobody's really looking at this stuff. And I, I just find these areas of uh, uh, fascinating that we can, you know, the, the, this intersection between orthodox medicine and herbal medicine is an area that is absolutely ripe for explanation uh, for exploration. Well, it sounds like a fun conference. And there's also um, folks from Herb Mentor y'all know, like Paul Bergner, Margie Flint, Rosalie's teaching, uh, KP, Talcaldica. A lot of people. If you go on over to hgsymposium.com and look down the list, will be familiar familiar names. And I think that would be a, an amazing opportunity to to uh, get together in a great location and 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 meet your favorite herbalist up close and personal, and uh, maybe answer get a chance to ask some questions, book signs, and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and again, you can visit uh, David Winston's school at herbalstudies.net and visit herbaltherapeutics.net. Any other site that I'm missing that you have? <laughs> well, there's the herbalistandalchemist.com, okay. which is the, uh, if the people are interested in products, and these are a lot of, you know, these are the formulas that I've created over oh, yeah. the years and things like that. And they're all based, you know, un unlike the formulas I mentioned earlier, which are based on, you know, research. Somebody says, this one was good, this one was good, this one was good, let's throw them together. You know, for the first 10 years, I had an herb company. We had no formulas. It was all individual herbs because as an herbalist, that's how I work with them, and I combine them for my patients. But people, of course, demanded formulas. And what I realized, that even though I give each person I see unique formulas, there are basic uh, sort of uh, roots to that formula. There's certain herbs that I tend to use together because I felt that I found that they really, really work. Mm. And so all of these formulas are based on those. those are, they're based on these combinations that I've used clinically for more than 35, 37 years um, that repeatedly I use over and over and over again for whatever it be, you know, you know, IBS or, or uh, um, you know, whatever, you know attention deficit disorder, whatever it might be. And, and that's really where, where I've been able to do that. Great. And oh, in the book uh, that we were, we, we've been featuring uh, today in our talk, uh, Adaptogens, uh, Herbs for Strength, Stamina, and Stress Relief, along with others. Uh, also, at, uh, I guess, uh, herbaltherapeutics.net would be the spot. And the difference between getting your book there versus going on Amazon would be getting it through well, David, you'll sign it, right? <laughs> Well, that's true. I mean, um, to be honest with you, if you go through Amazon, it's cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> you, you exactly. can They can sell it cheaper than I can sell it, but if you get it from me, I'll sign it to you. Exactly, so. and supports the herbalists. We're all about supporting herbalists here on Urban Tree Radio. Um, David Winston, it's been an honor. I've been wanting to talk to you forever. I'm glad we finally met at the IHS and we had a chance to have this talk. Thanks you so much for joining us today on Urban Tree Radio. You are very welcome, and thank you for having me. Visit learningherbs.com for free courses, ebooks, and monthly lessons. You'll also find the Herbal Remedy Kit and Wildcraft, an herbal adventure game. Herb Mentor Radio is produced for HerbMentor.com, our community mentoring site. 
Herb Mentor Radio is copyright learningherbs.com, LLC, all rights reserved. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it.